Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. I'm joined on the line by the indefatigable Simon Abrahams, creative director and CEO of Melbourne Fringe, who, together with his team at Melbourne Fringe, have been designing and redesigning Melbourne Fringe for multiple possibilities and multiple outcomes, and now have a festival program which they have launched, and uh, they're ready to unleash the arts upon Melbourne. Simon, lovely to have you with us. Thank you, Richard. Good morning. So how many different iterations of the Melbourne Fringe Festival program did you actually end up going through, do you think? Look, I've actually lost count, but I think I think it is 16 different versions that we have created and thrown out. But also, you know, that feels like the name of a game in 2020. And I have to say on number 17, which is, I think, the one that we've released to the public, I think we've landed somewhere pretty exciting. So in terms of Melbourne Fringe, for people who've never been to the Melbourne Fringe Festival or indeed any Fringe Festival, the word fringe is sometimes contested territory, but it generally is seen, seems to mean kind of at the fringes, at the edges, at the margins of the mainstream, the traditional. So is this a celebration of Melbourne's avant-garde or is it something else? It's sort of a combination of all of those things. It is absolutely a celebration of people at the margins, of new perspectives, of new ideas. But I don't know, to me, Richard, fringe also means freedom. It means, because we're an open access festival, that means anyone can register their event. So it's also about representing, I guess, what Melbourne's people, Melbourne's artists have to say right now. And obviously in 2020, the year that it's been, they've got lots of things to say. But it is definitely about discovery, I think, about discovering new ideas and new artists and new art forms and pushing your own boundaries to go somewhere new and interesting as well. Well, certainly historically for me, Melbourne Fringe has always been a chance to take a creative risk on artists I've never heard of or a venue I've never been to or just go, well, I just saw something really great and I've got 15 minutes to kill with a drink at the Fringe Club before I could just randomly go and see another show. Let's take a punt. So there's always been great joys and sometimes a couple of, of real surprises in there. But in terms of how the artists of Melbourne Fringe have adapted for this emerging from COVID world. Talk to us about the way they're presenting work because we're not yet at the stage here in Melbourne where you can sit down in a theatre, even at 50% capacity, and watch a show. So how have Melbourne Fringe's artists created work that can be presented in this way, particularly given we're all a bit over Zoom? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you're absolutely right. And for those who haven't come, of course, Melbourne Fringe traditionally is a festival that has a lot of theatre work, a lot of people sitting down in inside spaces, watching shows, going to galleries, doing things that maybe aren't allowed at this moment in time. So our artists have really thought of new and interesting ways. So we have telephone art, you know, one-on-one performances that happen over the phone or via text message. There's um, home-delivered art. So uh, you, you might order a ticket and a box arrives in your house and you open it and something happens or you do something with it. There's work that happens in outside. Um, so maybe you listen to a, a headphone work and, and go outside for a walk and listen to it and do something, do what it tells you to do. There's art that happens in your bath, 
in your bed, in all sorts of places, as well as work outside. We've got work on billboards, in shop windows, behind glass. There's one work in someone's back garden. There's one work outdoors at the Abbotsford Convent. And, of course, there is a lot of work that is broadcast, streamed. It's on Zoom. It's on our digital platform that we built especially for the festival that you can stream to your TV. So, you know, there, there's every kind of possible art that, that you can imagine and in really new and, and interesting and kind of really diverse, unique ways. And in terms of the streamed art, earlier in the year you created in a, a fairly short space of time a completely new festival as a platform to experiment and tinker with ways of delivering art online. There were some glitches and teething problems, as you'd expect with anything new like that, but presumably that process of experimentation has then meant that the delivery of digital art for Fringe now, which is running from the 12th to the 29th of November, has been fine-tuned. Both the, the festival team and the artists know how to do it and what to expect. That's exactly it. That was, you know, a huge part of why we decided to run VCR Fest, which was our first digital festival, was to experiment, to work things out, to test ideas. And a huge amount was learnt in that because artists are not used to working in these ways or with technology in this way. So everyone's learning as they're going and it was exactly the, the plan was to take a risk, try some things and get everything sorted out before... The main festival, which opens on the 12th of November, uh, and now, of course, all those technical things are sorted out to ensure a really smooth customer experience. In terms of this year's Melbourne Fringe Festival, the festival is normally in September, for example, so it's a little bit later in the year, and it's not necessarily yeah. the festival that we know, but it's still the festival we love one of the things I think that's important to note about the festival adapting to these new modes of creation and delivery is that instead of international artists having to fly here at great expense, put themselves up in a hotel, take the risk that people will come and see their shows, it's much, much easier to present international work. You've got a whole cohort from Taiwan, for example. Yeah, we do. We've got a, a whole focus program on on work from, from Taiwan with some really interesting stuff in there. You know, there's an artist who is dancing in duet with their robotic vacuum cleaner. There's an artist who is undertaking a series of dates uh, where you each make cocktails on either side of a Zoom call. There's a, a work that is about the death of magic and that kind of illusion that takes place online. So there's lots of interesting work from Taiwan. There's also work from Singapore, from the States, from the UK. And so you're absolutely right. It, it's enabled a bunch of actually really amazing artists to be able to distribute their work to new audiences in, in new ways through online means. And actually not just online, there's a really interesting work called Project Intimacy that comes from the UK that is via text message. The whole show happens via text message. So there's artists that are really thinking differently and experimenting and, and trying new forms. But, you know, I feel excited by the work from Melbourne too because it's Melbourne's artists and 80% of the, of the festival is, is Victorian artists because Melbourne's artists have had to create work in the most unique circumstances this year and I think that's reflected in the work they've made as well. Well, as you say, there's the fact that people have thought about under these new and trying circumstances, how do you want to experience art? How will you enjoy it? So the idea of taking a bath with another artist, their work being made from their bath to yours is a delightful idea. But there's also the opportunity, I understand, to experience work through windows. Yeah, that's right. There's work that happens behind glass 
So, you know, you can, I guess, have that the safety of, of a glass barrier between you and a performer. But there's a work called Conservatory, which will be a, a durational performance installation by the amazing Melinda Hetzel and Nick Barlow, who's toured around the world with Cirque du Soleil. There's a work called DC Style Files, which is an artist in an, in, in an installation in a milk bar shop window creating fashion out of found objects um, and creating them live in front of you. So, yeah, there's work happening behind glass. There's work in the shop window of the extraordinary Rose Chong's costume shop in Fitzroy. So artists are, are, are definitely thinking, how can I make this work safe and still bring it to an audience? And they've also thought about how to interpret or reinterpret the the weird year we've been living through. We know, for example, that for people trying to escape domestic violence, being in lockdown with your abuser would have must have been a nightmare. We've seen spikes in violence. People are responding to that as a theme, for example. Yeah. Work, stay at home. Yeah, that's right. So Casey Gambling is the, is the artist who, who made a really interesting work a couple of years ago called The Maze, um, which was about women's bodies in, in public space. And Casey was very successful. And Casey's taken that work, a new create, taken that idea to create a new work in a completely different space, of course, which is the home and, and looking at the safety of women's bodies at home, which particularly in, in this time has been a place of refuge for some and a, a place of, of violence for others. So, you know, there's, there's lots of really fun, celebratory, great works from the festival. And then there's some really amazing, quite serious, quite dramatic work that are, that are saying things about our times as well. There's also work by artists who came to Australia for the Adelaide Fringe and got stuck here when everything was closed <laughs> down. They're Canadian, is that right? Creepy Boys? Yeah, Creepy Boys. It's actually, uh, it's going to be a really great work, I think. They're award-winning artists from Canada, exactly as you say. They came out for Adelaide in February, March, and they got stuck here. And so they've been living here since that time, making a show from Melbourne Fringe um, that's, that's about that experience. And they're really successful artists in Canada. No one's ever heard of them over here, but I've seen some of the work and it's, it's really quite extraordinary. So there's interesting... You know, people even from overseas are making work about their experience in Melbourne over this year. And then, as, as you've said, also plenty of Melbourne artists making work. So names that people may know, uh, Telia Neville, for example, or Katie Svetkidis or the Snuff Puppets, also creating and presenting new work as part of this year's Melbourne Fringe Festival. Yeah, absolutely. One step at a time like this, people might know their work. There's work happening inside virtual reality as well. The substation are running a program called Platform, which happens in Minecraft. The dance party Creatrix Tiara is creating a, uh, a fringe festival inside Animal Crossing New Horizons. And, of course, Fringe Furniture, which has been around for 34 years, is moving into Mozilla Hubs as a virtual reality kind of gamified experience as well. So people are, are making work in, in new ways and new platforms and in ways that we entirely never would have imagined. For people who haven't dived into a fringe festival before, part of the pleasure is just surrendering yourself to whatever comes. What's your advice about experiencing and navigating the festival digitally? It can be overwhelming for people, I think. There's 250 events and they may not know all of the names. So one of the first things I recommend is to attend our Club Fringe at Home events. Normally they're in person, um, but this time they're Club Fringe at Home. It's streamed to your living room. Lots of really super fun themed events that happen 
every night of the festival. And there's lots of little three or four minute bites from artists throughout the festival making something specially for the club program. It's a really good way to discover artists and decide if you then want to see the rest of their work. Also, if you log on to our website, there's what we call Guides to Fringe, where you can decide if you want to see something in the outdoors, if you want to see something through the Queer Guide to Fringe or the First Nation Guide to Fringe or the Deaf and Disability Arts Guide to Fringe or whatever it is that you might be interested in that meets your kind of interest, you can navigate your way to kind of, I guess, narrow the program down, you know, or choose by art form. You know, if you want to see a music event or a cabaret event or a, a theatre or, or a visual art. So I recommend not necessarily just jumping in and going, oh my God, there's 200 events, but to narrow it and just take a risk. The prices are really, really cheap. Most of the events are choose your price where you can pay nothing if you can't afford it or $5 or $100 if you can. You can can pay whatever you like. So the risk is low and the rewards can be really extraordinarily high. And if you keep your eye on, as I say, the Fringe website with lists of previous award-winning shows, what other people are buying, so, you know, top-selling shows, uh, and throughout the festival, we announce our award nominees as well, which is our judges are, are on the prowl and looking at what shows are, are really hot and exciting. So there's lots of ways to work out what's happening and what's exciting and what the interesting shows are that you've got to see. And finally, not only are there shows that you can see, but as we've heard, shows you can experience and shows that can help solve problems for you. There's going to be a dial an artist service where you can call all kinds of different artists throughout the festival and ask for their assistance with a a particular conundrum. Maybe it's, how do I attract the boy who I really like who never responds to my messages on Grindr? Or maybe it's, how do I bake the perfect sponge cake? It's one of my favourite events in the festival. We've got 18 different artists, amazing artists, and you call, literally, you call 1300-FRINGE and it will connect you to an artist. And that artist will be able to solve any problem. So any of the ones you've just suggested, how do we get rid of Donald Trump? Let's solve Brexit. I don't know. But uh, whatever idea you've got, you can put it to an artist and they'll help solve a problem. And to me, I guess the idea comes from this concept that artists are our most innovative, creative thinkers in our culture. But I don't think our community has been recognising that over the last six or nine months when we've needed new thinking. And so I wanted to put artists front and centre and show some of our most exciting and interesting artists to help solve our people's problems. So starting on the 12th of November, I encourage people to, uh, to dial an artist chat to some really amazing thinkers, any problem in the world that you want solved, just to see what solutions they might have. I look forward to dialing that number myself. For more information about the Melbourne Fringe Festival 2020, which is running from the 12th to the 29th of November, jump online, melbournefringe.com.au. I've been chatting with Simon Abrahams, the festival's creative director and CEO. Simon, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Richard. Back in March, I do believe it was, just when everything suddenly went to hell in a handbasket, a play at Red Stitch Actors Theatre by Michelle Lee called Single Ladies was it was in preview mode. It was just getting ready to open and suddenly everything ground to a halt. Well, the play itself may not be staged, but actors and artists and theatre companies being the inventive people that they are, there's now a series, a mini-series of audio plays called Single Ladies Now, which is kind of riffing off the show and its characters, but creating what I understand is something of a prequel. And joining us on the line to tell us more, one of the actors involved, Caroline Lee. Caroline, good morning. 
Hi, Richard. We've seen a lot of adaptations of, of ways that people have gone, we still need to make art and present art. Audio has been one of those. Am I right in thinking that Single Ladies Now is a prequel to the play itself, looking at the characters and telling their stories before we would have met them on stage? Yeah, that's right. That's right. So there's three characters in the play and each of the audio pieces is almost like a sort of internal monologue of them in their own... Yeah, in their own space prior to the opening of the play. There was a, uh, in the development of this work, which Michelle Lee, the playwright of the play, wrote, there was discussion about whether or not it should be what the characters are doing in lockdown. <laughs> but it was felt that it would be, it would more dovetail into the world of the play if it was more in this prequel format. Yeah. Which I guess And they... in fact, Oh, sorry, just to say that, in fact, the play is going to go on. So, again, like, it is going to be staged as the first piece of Red Stitch's season for next year. I assumed that was probably going to be the case. I hadn't heard anything official about next year's Red Stitch season, but it would make sense to go, well, we were almost there with the production. It was previewing. It was ready to go. Let's bring it back next year and, by way of introduction, create really an opportunity to, what, further flesh out the backstories of the of the individual characters in the piece. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Like, because the story of the play occurs across one day. And so because of that, you know, the, the amount of information that we find out about the characters and their backstories is, of course, in the play, but is a bit limited by the specifics of when we meet them and what's going on for them right at that moment. So, yeah, it was an opportunity to bring in, I, I guess, to, yes, kind of flesh out things about their relationships, their past, things like that, yeah. It, it was so great. It's been such a great opportunity to have that time to, to I guess, to explore them more. So the characters of the play, we have Anne, who's in her 70s, Rachel, who's in her 20s, and in between them, Lilike, who's in her 50s, all of them different generations, different women, but living in Collingwood. So overlapping lives in the one suburb. Is, this a, is the play itself a way to tell as much a story about cultural change and generational shifts in an inner-city suburb like Collingwood as much as it is a story about the women and the characters themselves? Yeah, absolutely. Michelle Lee was given a grant by the city of Yarra to write a piece specifically about that area and she interviewed lots of women living in the area and as she did those interviews and gathered information it became very clear that a strong story was about the gentrification of the neighbourhood and the generational change but being a fantastic the fantastic playwright that she is it's not an obvious take on that which is really fantastic so for example and the most elderly character is actually a relatively recent arrival in the neighborhood and she lives in those new apartments above Coles and she loves it you know she loves living there she loves the community inside the, that apartment building she loves being in the thick of the action because she's come from the suburbs and it's more Lilica that she's a, of Hungarian via Yugoslavia origin and it's more for Lilica that the generational change is the most 
problematic. You know, she's finding the changes in the neighbourhood really hard to cope with. And which, as you say, is automatically, it's a new take on the story because the easy or uh, expected story perhaps would have been the old Collingwood battler who's grown up uh, in <laughs> on the flats of Collingwood uh, and in her now in her 70s has seen it going from being a an old, rough inner-city working-class suburb to being completely gentrified. But giving that a different spin, as you say. And then these new audio plays, the these three short single ladies now audio dramas, then giving those characters even more life and more internal life. Yes, that's right. And then our beautiful sound designer, Alyssa Goodrich, has um, did all this sampling of the, of the sounds of Collingwood. So in Ra- Rachel, she's the youngest character in her, she's got in, so her audio monologue is set during the course of evening and early morning of being insomnia, you know, an insomniac and really having trouble sleeping. And you hear the sounds of the last tram and then the sounds of the first trams. And then Alyssa's also sampled specific bird sound and also traffic sound as well as the trams and the sounds of Smith Street to accompany the audio track. So, yeah, they're really beautiful in an audio, in a sonic fashion as well. Yeah. And, Caroline, I would imagine that you uh, and the other cast members recorded all of this in isolation, in lockdown. It wasn't possible to go into a studio, for example, perhaps. And and, uh, were you doing all of this at home remotely? No, we... It was really amazing. We were actually able to do it in the gap. Oh, that that weird (laughs) one-month interregnum between lockdown one and two. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so we had to observe a lot of COVID safe protocols even though even even though it was in that gap but yes we were able to go into the studio of the sound engineer Russell Goldsmith and individually go in all masked up and he was masked up and then do do it like that with all of the rest of the creative team on Zoom but still yeah we were able to avoid having to do it at our homes which was great because you know, that would have been a nightmare for the audio world. Look, having done some audio recording at home during lockdown for podcasts and triple R sponsorship announcements and more, yeah, sitting in your bedroom with a towel over your head trying to create the, the, the right soft audio sound, not quite the same as being in a proper studio. Right, yeah. So Single Ladies Now is a mini album of audio plays introducing us to the the three characters of Michelle's play Single Ladies, which was uh, the season of which was cancelled back in March at Red Stitch Actors Theatre, but will be returning to stages in 2021, as Caroline has told us. And this is an opportunity to learn more about those characters. Do these audio plays work as self-contained works or do they really only serve as an entree to the the theatre work to come? Oh, no, no, they're they're really beautiful just as self-contained works and even just each one of them, you know, Rachel, Lilica or Anne can be listened to by itself and, in fact, there are some suggestions about when might be a good time to listen to them because they're very time-specific as well um, on the Red Stitch website, yeah. For more information, jump online, www.redstitch.net to find out more about listening to single ladies now and, as Caroline Lee has just told us, the right time to listen to them as well. Caroline, a pleasure chatting to you and I hope to see you performing on a stage in the not-too-distant future. Thank you so much, Richard.
We're going to talk about a romance. We're going to talk about uh, a son of Erin, an Irishman who came to Australia and became a bushranger. And I'm joined on the line by journalist and author Gary Linnell, whose new book, Moonlight, tells the story of Captain Moonlight, a bushranger who was notorious in his day, but whose name has perhaps faded somewhat from history. Gary, thanks for joining us. Good morning, Richard. Great to be with you. I first encountered the story of Captain Moonlight back when I was working as a freelance writer and then eventually the editor of a gay and lesbian community newspaper. The story of a bushranger who may well have been, by contemporary standards, what we would now call a a gay man. It's difficult to use contemporary sexuality when talking about figures from the past. But how did you first hear about Captain Moonlight and why did you want to write a book about him? Uh, Very true what you say. He was probably an accidental bushranger and probably the most unlikely of bushrangers that we ever saw uh, in the 19th century in Australia. Look, I was always a, a kid growing up. I was always uh, consuming and pouring through all of those almanacs that used to come out, you know, revealing the, the tales of people like Captain Thunderbolt and Mad Dog Morgan and, uh, of course, you know, Ned Kelly. And there was always a brief mention or two of someone like uh, Captain Moonlight. You never really got the full story and you've always felt as though it was, something was being held back. And I think there's a reason for that. I think in the nature of the man and his relationship with a, a young man called James Nesbitt back in 1879 probably meant that you know, a lot of the historians wanted to airbrush him out of the pages of history because we're talking about the Victorian era, you know, a time of very, fairly, very prim and sort of, and I guess what they would call proper attitudes towards sexuality in, in the time. But Moonlight himself, as it turned out, was an extraordinary figure, certainly the most charismatic of men, uh, the most charismatic of bushrangers. He was born in uh, Northern Ireland in a very small town into a family of relative wealth and privilege in 1845, just as the famine began. And the family eventually lost their fortune, moved to New Zealand. Andrew George Scott, as he was born, fought against the Maori in the New Zealand wars. He was injured there, came over to Australia and became a lay reader for the Anglican Church. And he'd been trained in the classics. He was a a brilliant speaker, a fiery orator who would draw hundreds of people to those small tin churches that they had scattered around country Victoria at the time. But in 1869, he was sent to Mount Edgerton, which is a small mining town just north of Ballarat. This was at the tail end of the gold rush. And he robbed a bank of a thousand pounds in gold nuggets and cash took off to uh, the Pacific Islands, came back, was finally arrested and um, was sentenced to 10 years in prison in Pentridge Stockade for that, uh, for that robbery. Uh, in between time, he'd sort of staged one of the most audacious jail escapes that the colonies had ever seen, took six men with him over the wall of uh, Ballarat Jail and was only recaptured 10 days later. But it was in Pentridge where he came across a young man called James Nesbitt and there was just instant attraction. They became inseparable. And we know all about this because uh, subsequently the two men, along with a a group of other young men, lay siege to a a large water battery station just outside of Gundagai. There was a big shootout and Captain Moonlight, as as he was then dubbed, was taken to Sydney and was eventually hanged. And in the lead up to his execution, he sat in his death cell and wrote dozens of letters. I mean, he just occupied his time with all these beautiful letters. A lot of them sort of, you know, slabs of some of the great classic poets that he could sort of recite off the top of his head. And he wrote to James Nesbitt's mother and told her about his great love for James. He told other people too how he wanted to be buried with James. He wanted to share a grave with him and 
um, sleep with him for eternity. Now, in the language of these days, men often wrote to each other and declared their, their love for each other, but not with a sort of ardour and passion that we saw from the pen of Captain Moonlight. And certainly, to, to jump in there, the, the fact mm-hmm. that he is writing, for example, to James Nesbitt's mother, essentially almost saying that he is, is her own son in spirit because he was so close to her son, he sends her a lock of her dead son's hair that he'd clipped from James Nesbitt's head when James lay dying in his lap. And one of the the stories seems to be that Captain Moonlight could have escaped uh, had he but he did not want to leave the, the body of his lover behind. No, that's certainly right. James had been um, shot in the temple by a uh, trooper's gun, and as he lay dying there, Moonlight leant over and, and cradled him in his arms, and according to the other troopers who were watching this, kissed him passionately all over his blood-smeared face, and it was as though he was either trying to breathe life back into him, and he was crying, and he was very emotional whenever he spoke about James. And when you go through the newspapers of the time, because they're obviously a very important source in this story, it's never quite openly said what sort of relationship the two men had, except that it was close or they were, quote, inseparable. But when you read between the lines and you read some of the letters that some people wrote to the newspapers, it's clear there's a nudge, nudge, wink, wink. There are references to James Nesbitt being a, quote, puff which was a slang term back in the 19th century for homosexual men. So it was clear that a lot of people knew the full story of these two men. And it, was the, it was truly the love that dare not speak its name in public. And so it was never sort of openly said. And I think that's one of the reasons why you know, the, the extraordinary story of Captain Moonlight, and it is extraordinary, he was a magnificent figure. You know, he, he went on a public lecture circuit just after his release from Pentridge, where at one stage he went to Ballarat, 500 people crammed into the Unicorn Hotel there, paying a penny each to listen to him talking about the shortfalls of the prison system in Victoria. He was eloquent, he was charismatic. He had a big, lustrous, thick beard, of course, because he couldn't be a, uh, a real man back in those days without a big, thick beard, beautiful, thick head of hair and steely blue eyes that a lot of people found incredibly magnetic. And yet, suddenly, this bloke who was such a formidable figure in, uh, in 1879 and 1880, and he and uh, Kelly were obviously executed within 10 months of each other, it brought about the end of the entire bushranging era which was a, you know, a stunning conclusion to what had seen 70 or 80 years of Australia of all these outlaws roaming the countryside. One of the things that intrigues me and one of the things that you explore in the book, the parallel careers of bushrangers like Ned Kelly and Captain Moonlight, for example. And I'm curious to know, because it's almost like there was a culture of forgetting. The, the colonial period had seen bushrangers celebrated, which clearly shocked and outraged the high society of the day. These common ruffians could be somehow lauded and lionised by the populace. Do you think that one of the reasons that Captain Moonlight is not as well known today as Ned Kelly, for example, is because he was part of that bush-ranging culture that prim and Victorian society wanted to forget. It's not just the sexuality that's the issue, but the whole lawlessness and the rebellion against what was a deeply codified society. Oh, look, without doubt, by, by, the time, by, uh, by the time of the 1870s and 1880s, Australia had changed. Don't forget that this is the start of the, the great, the second industrial revolution. You know, you've got Carl Benz in Mannheim in Germany tinkering with a two-stroke engine that's about to become the very first motor car in the world. You've got Thomas Edison creating the long-lasting light bulb. 
You've got Alexander Graham Bell over in Canada in a small farm tinkering with a machine that's going to transmit his voice and become the telephone. So you've got all of these abrupt changes going on. People are moving into the cities, the whole notion of the Australian bush. And it's convict heritage. Australians believed by then that there was this convict stain and they wanted to be seen back in London, in the mother country, as being a, a, a true nation and a mature nation, not just a nation that had been founded, uh, or at least in the history of white Australia, with people in chains. And they wanted to get rid of that. And the bushrangers were just a constant reminder of the lawlessness that had accompanied the white settlement of Australia. So they were very, very keen to stamp out the bushrangers. They brought in special laws that allowed citizens to go and shoot and kill bushrangers because they were outside the law. And yet Moonlight and Kelly, who were the last of the true bushrangers, were this festering sore. You know, they continued to embarrass the authorities. They made the troopers and the police forces in New South Wales and Victoria look inept and amateurish. And no one could understand why they couldn't track them down. The world for the, for these bush rangers was getting smaller and smaller. There were fewer places to hide, you know. We didn't have the bush telegraph anymore. We had the electric telegraph. And so suddenly each town was being connected and they could sort of discover news or come across events that had just happened rather than waiting weeks and sometimes months for information to arrive. So it was essentially it's a really important time of change in Australian history and that these two men, you know, Kelly and particularly Moonlight, I mean, Moonlight's the siege of Wantabadgeri Station was front, well, essentially huge news, not just around Australia, but around the world and his execution in Darlinghurst Jail in January in 1880. There were 5,000 people who gathered outside the prison trying to get a glimpse of the rope as he walked onto the gallows. What's also intriguing about bushrangers generally is that we even had here in Australia a genre of very popular bushranger films that if the Australian film industry had been encouraged in that regard could have come to rival the Western in the USA, but then bushranger films were actually banned in three states here in Australia from around 1912 because, again, this fear of the impact that they would have on on law and order. To come back specifically to to writing Moonlight, one of the things that intrigues me about the book is that you've chosen to write it in a very accessible journalistic fashion instead of constant footnotes throughout documenting your sources and so forth. Why have you decided to present it in this way so as not to interrupt the reader's flow, for example? Look, I've tried to write it as a novel, uh, but it's all based. I mean, it's all true. There's nothing that's made up in there. Every quote there is sourced, either transcripts in court cases or on arrest sheets and in newspaper reports of the time. But I've, I've written it in present tense because I wanted to move it. I wanted to make it interesting to people who normally wouldn't pick up a history book because I find footnotes slow the pace down. They look like little, well, for a start, visually they're terrible. They look like little flies crawling around the page. And they also distract the reader from the momentum of the story you're trying to tell. And so you can always find out where all the sources are, you know, as I explain later in the book, you know, how I, how I sort of found all this information. But I wanted to sort of set it in its time and give people a sense of not just time but place and movement and momentum. And, and, and you know, I, when I was in school, in history class, I'd be sitting at the back, bored out of my mind, like most people, I think. I think Australian history, at least since this time of white settlement, a lot of us look back, look at it as, as though it's that sort of embarrassing uncle who turns up on the front porch on Christmas Day and is uh, usually drunk and fast asleep by four o'clock in the afternoon with a lampshade over his head. We're kind of embarrassed by our history. It seems boring and dull. And I just think the problem is 
it's quite a rich history. And there are so many incredible characters, particularly in the 19th century, who emerged. But we're never told about them in, in a way that we should. And you know, I like, would like to see history and our history being retold, if you like, in a, in a way that's far more accessible than probably what we've had in the past. As well as writing it in an accessible fashion, I get the... I'm about a third of the way through it yet. I'm very much looking forward to continuing to read. I haven't got up to the point where Moonlight meets Jim yet. Have you written this consciously wanting to romanticise this relationship, to argue that it was truly a love affair between these two men? Oh, yeah, look, I mean, I've, I've got no doubt. I mean, I've spoke to historians, men like Gary Wotherspoon, who has been a tremendous historian over the years in Australia documenting the history of the gay community and he's without any doubt as well that Moonlight and James Nesbitt carried on in what we would call a gay relationship and look I don't think there's any doubt I think it's one of the great love stories and I don't want to see a story about so-called bush rangers written I certainly don't want to write it without exploring the personal side of their lives and the emotional side of their lives and I think it's a really clearly people's sexuality is a, is a guiding sort of key characteristic of how you turn out and how you behave in life and how you interact with other people. And I think in Moonlight's case, there would have been probably frustration that he couldn't sort of so openly cohabit with James Nesbitt. Nesbitt was a young kid from the northern suburbs of Melbourne. I mean, his old man was a drunk. The newspapers used to call James Nesbitt Senior the brute. And he would often be in court for drunkenness, for belting his kids and belting his wife. So he'd run with a lot of the small gangs around the northern suburbs of Melbourne, like the Bouverie Street push, and he was a petty thief. And that's how Moonlight came across in, in Pentridge in about 1875, because he was serving four years, Nesbitt, for a petty crime, and Moonlight was there for the uh, robbery of the Edgerton uh, Bank. The book is called Moonlight. It's out now from Penguin Books through their imprint, Michael Joseph. But if you jump online, www.penguin.com.au, you can find out more details about it. Retailing for $34.99. It's also available as an e-book and, I believe, as an audio book as well, Gary. Yeah, uh, Ryan Kaur, who was uh, one of the key actors in... Um, in Holding Pack the Man. The rafters. Yeah, exactly. And indeed, he's, uh, he's done the audio version of it and done a fantastic job because there's no way I could have got that nice Irish accent across and he's got a beautiful one. So he's done a terrific job. Gary Linnell, congratulations on the book. I'm very much enjoying reading it. I will continue uh, to... I, will, I think I'll have finished it by the, the end of the week because it's very readable, very engaging and great to have a light shot on this particular element of not only Australian bush-ranging history but Australian queer history as well. Moonlight by Gary Linnell out in bookshops now. Gary? Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Richard. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the art, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. <laughs> <laughs>